This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. On the clinician track, less than 50% of them felt that they had had any adequate mentoring thus far in their career. Mm. Whereas women on the investigator track, which is our tenure track, um, expressed satisfaction at the same level as their male colleagues around mentoring. And all the men expressed on all tracks expressed much higher <clears throat> feelings of satisfaction around mentoring than did the women. So we know this is a big issue. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Diana Gray, the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Diana. How are you doing today? Hi, Kim. I'm doing great. And hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Diana. Um, This has been such a fun adventure for all of us. I We're getting feedback that people really like the conversations and some people are listening to these conversations over and over and over again, and they're really, um, I think it's what's happening is what we wanted to happen. We want to kind of bring people together, work on building relationships, share a little wisdom and encourage and inspire each other. So people are always so curious, how in the world does an MD in obstetrics and gynecology, radiology, um, end up being the associate dean for faculty affairs? Can you kind of guide us through your journey? Sure, that's a great question, actually. Well, um, I have been at Washington University School of Medicine a long time, did my residency and fellowship training here, and then was asked to stay on faculty in my department of obstetrics and gynecology. And I eventually became a division director in my department in the division of genetics and ultrasound, um, as we had it back then. I was division director for, I don't know, five to seven years, something like that. And then our chair decided to merge that section with another section, the section of maternal fetal medicine. And so a more senior member of that section became the division chief overall. And so I had been doing my role as a prenatal genetics expert and imaging expert in obstetrics and gynecology for about 15 years, I guess, when there was yet another task force uh, put together by the dean to study the advancement or lack thereof of women faculty at the School of Medicine. And I was asked to be on, serve on the task force. And we, you know, all sort of looked at each other and sighed at our first mm-hmm. meeting, I think. And said, okay, like how many of these task forces are we going to have? How many of them, how many reports are we going to generate before we really feel that the leadership is engaged in this uh, process and that things are going to change? So we started our work on the task force again, gathering data, making proposals about initiatives and programs we thought could have impact and came back together, I think only for one more meeting. The chair of that task force was a professor of pediatrics. She was an infectious disease expert. And um, we all sort of sat around the table at our second meeting. And I think I was in charge of a subcommittee on um, recognition. So uh, making sure that women's efforts were publicized and recognized through awards, through publications, you know, internal and external and so forth. So I put together a short you know, summary of what our task force, our subcommittee had done. And then we all just said, you know what, we've had enough of this. We're not going to do this anymore um, as far as generating proposals, writing up reports, giving them to the dean and, and our executive faculty, and then feeling like they go in the circular file and things don't change. So until the dean and the executive faculty decide that they are going to be the ones on these task forces and they are going to do the hard work of this and make sure that the proposals are implemented. We're not going to do this anymore. So we decided to disband the the committee at that point, and we asked for a meeting with the dean. He came to the next meeting, and we told him that this was our 
you know, bottom line, that we weren't going to do this work anymore until he and the executive faculty were willing to sit on these committees and do the hard work um, that we had done. And so he was rather surprised, but um, understood that. So at the same time as that happened, the Academic Women's Network, uh, which is, was a totally voluntary group of women faculty that formed in the early 90s um, for networking and promotion of women's women faculty careers, um, had started advocating for the School of Medicine to have an Office of Faculty Affairs because prior to that time we had no no decanal role, no office that um, oversaw the faculty as a separate entity. And so the dean sort of put two and two together and said, okay, I think it's time, um, you're right, that we do some things here. So he started a search process for an associate dean for faculty affairs. Um, the first associate dean appointed was not me, um, but it was another woman faculty member who was in internal medicine, a dermatologist, who um, I think was not really thrilled with the position. It was sort of ill-defined. It didn't know exactly, you know, where to go with it and so forth. And she was soon thereafter offered um, division chief position of dermatology here at the school. And so like 18 months after being appointed as associate dean for faculty affairs, she stepped down to take over as division chief for dermatology. So then they went through another search process. And in the meantime, the chair of that uh, women's advancement task force that had just um, disbanded came to me and said, Diana, I really think that you should put your name in the hat for the associate dean position because I think you would be a great associate dean of faculty affairs. And I said, oh, gosh. I never thought about that. Um, you know, I've been doing my prenatal diagnosis OBGYN work um, for 15 years. I thought maybe it was time for a change. And I, I said, well, maybe this is a, is a good time to, to uh, do something different. I had also been um, fulfilling a faculty advocacy role in many different arenas for several years. I was the first among the group, there were three of us who were the first representatives elected to the faculty practice plan here at the School of Medicine. That was committee was the board of that practice plan was mainly comprised of department chairs, but they always have general faculty clinician representatives. And so, you know, the whole the whole clinical faculty votes on the representatives. Um, from the general faculty, and so I was one of the inaugural elected members to the faculty practice plan board. So I had been doing faculty advocacy work in, in many different areas, not just in women's faculty areas, but um, for general faculty. So I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe this is a natural extension. I put my name in the hat, and eventually, and I was chosen to be the next associate dean for faculty affairs. So that is a long story, but that's how I came to be in this role. And when was that? When did you get that role, Diana? Uh, I was first appointed in the fall of 2002, 17 years this fall, right? 16 and a half years right now, right? I'm sure I'm not the only one listening to this whose eyes bugged out of my head when you said at the second meeting of this task force, you all said, all right, that's it. We're done. We're not doing this anymore. And you, your task force issued a mandate to the dean and the executive faculty kind of mutinous behavior, you know, people behaving badly. First of all, you need to tell us more about this because that kind of courage, I'm wondering how you came up with that and who, how you uh, mustered, the task force mustered the the courage, the guts to say, enough, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. Who had the idea of saying, that's it, we're going to the dean, enough is enough. Were you all professors? Were you tenured? Try to help us understand the, those of us who maybe don't have this kind of courage or perceived power or security to actually be tough like that. How did that happen? Yes. Yeah, so, so it was an all-women committee. Uh, we were at various ranks. I think the chair was the most senior member of the committee, and she was a professor and tenured. Um I couldn't tell you around the table how many others had tenure. I certainly did not. I was um, recently promoted to, uh, I don't even remember if I was still an assistant professor or if I was an associate professor. 
<clears throat> on the clinician track, a non-tenurable or tenure renewable um, track, really. And so I think there were probably very few of us that actually had tenure, but we many of us were in secure long-term uh, positions, and all of many of us were well respected by both the administration and the faculty. We had been handpicked, remember, to be on this task force by the dean or by a department head who recommended us to the dean. So we were well respected and we had done, most of us had done previous work around the same topic. And so we had expertise and I think that, um, Central administration, dean, and executive faculty were becoming a little uneasy with um, their lack of overt progress um, around women's advancement. And so it was sort of, I think, I don't remember if it was any one person's idea or sort of we all just started grumbling, you know, isn't this enough of this? You know, how many of these committees and task forces are we going to be on? You know, what's ever going to happen as a result of this? And so it was just sort of a consensus feeling around the table that enough was enough. And I will tell you that the other thing besides the um, Office of Faculty Affairs that came out of that um, sort of advocacy for doing something um, new and different was that the dean, when then I was appointed as associate dean for faculty affairs, he said, okay, Diana, we hear you all in terms of where we need to focus more specific resources and people with power on these initiatives around diversity. He said, so you are now going to be in charge of two new subcommittees of, of the academic affairs committee. One of them will focus on women faculty. So we ended up calling that the Gender Equity Committee. And the other will focus on underrepresented in medicine groups um, from ethnic and racial um, underrepresented groups. <clears throat> and you will also chair or co-chair that committee. And there will always be members of the executive faculty appointed to both of those committees. And you'll you'll decide who you'll get to choose, you know. So anyway, that was very effective. And so I formed these two subcommittees that, you know, worked for the next 15 years or so on issues of um, diversity and inclusion for the faculty and and really brought us a long way in that regard. Well, so I, I like that that setup that Apparently, your dean really understood the value of having someone on the executive faculty at the table. I mean, that sounds like your task force really led that effort in saying, listen, if you want to have real change, you and the, or these executive faculty have to be involved in the day-to-day operations or the understanding of what's happening here. And I, I, I like the way that and he, I assume it's a dean, is a, a male, of yeah, course. Said, he said that these two committees will always have standing representation from executives. So I love that. Nothing about us without us. If you want to be involved on this, you have to be, you know, you know, a tushy in the seat. You got to be there. So I love that that your force was a, a part of making sure that you institutionalize this idea of not just sending some minions to do something, but you have some people who are the real power and the clout to be at that table. So kudos to you. Yes, and I would um, elaborate a bit more even to say that on the Gender Equity Committee, I always asked another chair of a department to be the co-chair of that committee with me. So even though often that person was, you know, just sort of a figurehead, but always there, always available, you know, to the committee, to me, and, you know, let lent gravitas and then was ready, prepared to give reports to the rest of the executive faculty about what was happening, Mm. if need be, on our subcommittee. Yeah, love it. So, okay, you've just, so now you're sitting in this Office of Faculty Affairs, Associate Dean, for 16 and a half years. You described that your dean wanted you to put these two committees, Gender Equity and UIM. What does the, uh, how does the, the organizational structure of this office look um, in terms of staff? We're, people are always curious, how many staff do you have per faculty? Give us people a sense of um, how you organize or have organized your office or how it's grown over time, for example. 
Right. Well, we run a very lean operation, Kim, to say the least. So until um, until two years ago, I was 0.5 FTE in the Office of Faculty Affairs and 0.5 FTE in my department and wow. continued on in my departmental role of clinical practice, research, and education. Since two years ago with my new dean and him asking me to do more and more um, with the office, I have become 0.7 FTE in leading the Office of Faculty Affairs and only 0.3 full-time equivalent in my departmental role. So that's been a little bit of growth there as far as leadership goes. I've had one full-time executive assistant. She's our office coordinator who is, you know, multi-talented, versatile, bright, and, you know, really keeps all of the trains running on time and and very creative. She she basically composes our biweekly Office of Faculty Affairs newsletter. I edit it. You know, she has a lot of um, talent. So that's very helpful. And then I have a 0.5 FTE um, person who is an expert in academic publishing and she directs our faculty career development programming and leads workshops on grant writing, on academic publishing, on um, speaking to the media, on um, sometimes we do work-life balance career development. Anyway, she she directs all of the uh, faculty career development side of the office because we really don't have a separate office of faculty development. We do all the faculty affairs and faculty development here within this office. And that's it. That's my entire oh my uh, workforce. This point five yep. FTE uh, in the career development, what are her credentials? What uh, level is she? Yes. So she has a bachelor's degree and she has an, an executive MBA, which she acquired just like two or three years ago. But she was an editor of a major, like she was an Elsevier editor for a long time, and she's done a lot of <clears throat> a lot of academic medical publishing work through the years. So that's really a great area of expertise for her. And she's also a an author herself. And how did she acquire these skills for career development? You said she's leading a lot of this, the programming and workshops and things. Did she? learn these skills or um, she came with that, those, those tools as well? She definitely did not come with them. I've had to uh, teach her them and, you know, mentor her in terms of, in fact, in the beginning, she didn't really understand what career development was. Um, it was sort of a, mm, sort of a transfer by the dean from her work from the medical library over to faculty affairs at one point many years ago because she was an academic publishing expert. We thought it made sense for her to be under the umbrella of the Office of Faculty Development and Faculty Affairs. And But as far as the rest of it, you know, I've really had to mentor her and work with her. And, you know, she's, she's picked it up quite easily as time went on. Now, um, that is a real lean operation. Give us a sense of approximately how many faculty you have at WashU. We have 2,300 full-time employed faculty. And, you know, we can't fulfill all of the needs. But I will tell you that we also have partnership with our departments. I think five of our departments now have their own offices of faculty development. And so quarterly, we have a joint uh, faculty career development meeting where we all share around the table. So Department of Medicine, which is our largest department, of course, with over 600 faculty alone in the Department of Medicine, they have their own office of um, faculty development led, co-chaired by two uh, professors of medicine. And then <clears throat> surgery has its own office of faculty career development. Radiology has a very small operation that just started a couple of years ago. Pediatrics has a very well-developed um, Office of Faculty Development, um, co-chaired by three different faculty members. And then most recently, the Department of Pathology and Immunology have developed a separate office for faculty career development. Yeah, that's new. That's a new, something new to me that I've heard, uh, having that local faculty development component 
but then you do have those meetings where you all come together. So I imagine those five offices of faculty developments at the department levels that their offerings are only open to the faculty in those departments, correct? For the most part. Medicine being so large and having such a diverse portfolio does sometimes offer their programs widely to the school if they have enough space. So you um, you didn't mention promotion and tenure. Who handles that? Yes, so that's a good question because, you know, if if we handled all of that, obviously this operation would be way too lean to be able to do that. So we still have a very decentralized structure around appointments and promotions with the departments, again, handling most of the effort around that um, with sent with HR, human resources, holding the database for it. Uh, my office is peripherally involved in that if issues come up about transfer of tracks that people are unclear about or timing of various promotions and appointments or um, whether someone should be on a certain faculty track versus another and how are we going to promote them with tenure on from this track, blah, blah, blah. All these kinds of questions all come to me and we manage all of that. And then I am responsible for the appointments of all instructor level faculty as well. So, you know, that's just an ongoing um, updating and review of, of a database and so forth. And, you know, for the most part, that's not a huge onerous task. Right. Um, so the departments put together, we have a very unusual appointments and promotions process. I feel in regards to, in, in comparison to most medical schools, in that we don't have a standing appointments and promotions committee with rotating members and so forth. We have ad hoc appointments and promotions committees for every single appointment and promotion here. Wow. And what that, so by virtue of serving on these over and over, actually our executive faculty, our department chairs are the standing committee because Five out of seven members of every ad hoc committee have to be an executive faculty member, a department chair. Mm. And if it's a preclinical, a basic science uh, faculty member coming up for appointment and promotion, <clears throat> then the majority of the committee is to be comprised of preclinical chairs. Three out of five have to be preclinical chairs. If it's a clinical department, then just the reverse. Uh, the majority of the chairs have to be from clinical departments. And then there's always two general, senior general faculty members appointed to each ad hoc committee. So we have the, these ad hoc committees meet constantly year round. They're appointed by the dean, but the recommended members of each ad hoc committee are made by the department head who is bringing forward a slate of appointments and promotions. Departments do a lot of lifting. Yes, they do. Okay, this that is just so interesting to me. Really unique, I think, arrangement so far that I've heard. Yes. So, yes. Why don't you um, tell us something that you wanted to share with our family, our GFA family? What's something unique or different that you're doing? Something you're excited about? Something particularly innovative? Well, I think of the two of all the many items in my portfolio, there there are two that I spend a great deal of time on that I'm really pretty engaged and excited about right now. And one of them has been ongoing for eight years. And that's the uh, School of Medicine Academic Medical Leadership Program for Physicians and Scientists, which I developed, co-developed with my counterpart in the School of Business, the Olin Business School here at Washington University. He's the, Sam Chun is his name, and he's the Assistant Dean over Executive Education. So they have a lot of executive education that they provide through the business school. And, you know, mainly their clients are, you know, private industry like Boeing or, you know, Emerson Electric here in town, you know, mm -hmm. who want to develop their leaders. They also run an executive MBA program continuously, you know, that many of our faculty members have, have um, participated in and gotten their executive MBAs. So he and I developed the course content. And this was after I was lucky enough to participate in Harvard's academic um, medical leadership program for um, physicians back in my early years as associate dean for faculty affairs. You know, it's a very intensive two-week total immersion, um, you know, 
on site at Harvard um, School of Public Health, it was then that was running it um, program. And I thought it was fabulous. And the, you know, the curriculum was great. I came back with, you know, these three or four huge binders of materials. So I started talking to my dean at that time after I got back from that course about how we needed to develop something similar locally because while it was a great course at Harvard and I learned a lot and I felt like I had a lot of new competencies and skill sets as a result, I lost my contact with the cohort that we all went through this intensive experience together. We, you know, could have been support system for each other had we been at the same institution, but it's very hard when you're all dispersed across the country, you know, at the end of one of these programs to really maintain that sort of, you know, cohort feeling. So I thought we needed to develop something local where our faculty could go through as a cohort and then they would have each other for future years to draw on. And after a lot of, you know, a lot of advocacy and building a curriculum and so forth, the dean agreed and the executive faculty agreed that this would be a good thing to do. And we developed it. And so the first class, um, we've always had small classes because we want a lot of interactive um, classroom work and we put together teams. We deliberately choose uh, members of five or six teams for each class and they have to work together collaboratively on a team project throughout the six months of the course. This is 72 classroom hours, this course is. It runs over a Friday afternoon, four hours, following Saturday morning, four hours. So it starts in January, finishes at the end of June, you know, with skipped weeks in between, obviously. And you know, they get to know each other really well. They, you know, it's a real bonding and getting to know people in different disciplines because the criteria for entry are, it's these are executive leadership skills. So the criteria for entry are that they have to be sponsored by their chair or someone who will, you know, pay the $4,000 fee and feels that, you know, this is of value for this particular faculty member, either because they're in a significant leadership role already or because they're emer an emerging leader. And so these are usually fairly senior faculty, although we have had um, many assistant professors also go through the program and find it quite valuable. And and we have outcome data that shows, you know, over 50 to 60 percent of our graduates as of last year had advanced to more advanced rank positions. Almost all of them had advanced to professor um, by last year or and Many of them had become significant, in, had come into significant leadership roles um, within a few years of participating in the course. So anyway, I find this a very um, stimulating, engaging, um, exciting program. All of our, we get great feedback every year from, we, we combine both faculty, mostly faculty, PhD and MD faculty in the program. And then our, we have three partners that cooperatively collaborate in this program. The School of Medicine, which was the initiator, and the and the School of Business, and then BJC Health System, which is our partner healthcare system, the hospital system. They donate the space to us and they donate two of their executive leadership courses to the program that are facilitated by two of their um, transformation group facilitators. One is on uh, critical thinking and decision making, and the other is on accelerating change transitions. And these are great courses. We I helped pare them down to eight hours because normally they're three day long courses that they put all of their management and leadership team through in, on the hospital side. But a lot of it for our faculty was very redundant. They they tend to be iterative in the way that they drive home a lot of these lessons. So anyway, we were able to pare both of them down to eight critical hours, and so. It's really a great program. The, the team projects, over a third of the team projects have been implemented um, at the medical school or at the medical center as real world, you know, new programs, new initiatives, um, if new efficiencies and so forth around both scholarly topics, academic topics and clinical, a lot of clinical care um, sorts of projects. And then the, the final session is at the end of June, and we have team project presentations. Each of the teams uh, presents their project to all assembled, 
And usually there's many hospital system leaders. The dean is always there. Several department chairs who have sponsored faculty to attend the program that year are usually present. And a lot of the instructors are present. So it's a big crowd that listens to the team project presentations. And then the final um, session, the last hour or so of the course, is a leadership panel. The dean is always on the panel. Usually the hospital system CEO or Barnes-Jewish Hospital president or Children's Hospital president, and then a couple of department heads are on the leadership panel, and they talk about issues of significance around leadership, you know, lessons learned or, you know, what they think are the key characteristics and and issues around leadership that are take-home messages for the class. So I really, I really enjoy that. It's a lot of work, I have to tell you, but um, I think the rewards are immense, and we hear constantly from faculty you know, who were in past classes, how they call on their colleagues who were in the class with them, you know, to bounce ideas off, you know, when they have a new idea or when they're moving to a, a new um, rank or a new position and so forth. So I find that very rewarding. Um, the other now is okay, a fairly okay, new. How many people, students, are in each year's cohort and how long have you been doing this program? When did you start it? We started in 2012. So this is our eighth cohort right now that's ongoing, and we always limit the class size to 20 to 30, 30 max uh, for small group interaction reasons, and for capacity, the space that BJC gives us, executive education space, really the classroom can't hold more than 30 with any great comfort, so. Well, can I add, before you go on to the next thing, since you've been doing this for, you know, now the eighth year, have you observed or noticed any difference um, or like patterns or trends or things that that would indicate kind of how the generational differences or, or diversity in, in age or stage of the faculty participants? You know, if you reflect back on 2012's the final presentation day of the team projects, and thinking over the years uh, about those um, project presentations, I'm sure they those presentations, since they're real-world problems, they certainly represent what was hot during that time or what was important to the faculty. So I'm curious if you have observed, or now that you think about it, any kind of little you know, nuances that would signify changing trends or what's kind of stood out to you as different over the years compared to early years? Can you, does anything come to you that is interesting like that? Well, that's a great question, Kim. Um, I think that the mix of project ideas, so here's how we identify project ideas. First of all, maybe that'll be helpful. We ask that each member of the new class bring to the first session in January at least one idea for a team project that you know, would capitalize on the lessons learned through the program that they're about to undertake and that would be a real-world issue for our medical school or our medical center, something that could be implemented um, at the end of the program or shortly thereafter with a little bit more um, input and work. And, and so in order to make sure that these are truly mission-important, mission-critical mission sorts of projects, we ask that they collaborate with their program, whoever's sponsoring them to attend the program, their debar department head or division chief or whoever it is that's paying their way and sponsored them, recommended them to the program. So that way we know that these are real world issues that the leadership will be engaged in and would like to see come to fruition. And this year we've even tweaked it a little bit further in that after the last um, leadership panel last June, the CEO of the hospital system was on the leadership panel and he took me aside afterwards and said, Diana, the, this program is so great and it's developing so many, you know, physician leaders because we take some BJC medical group physician um, developing leaders into it too. He said, and we're so happy that the faculty are developing these leadership skills because we depend on them for so many things. He said, and these are a bunch of smart, innovative people. He said, we really need to capitalize on the brain power in this group. He said, 
So I would like to meet with you sometime in the next few months before you start the next program to talk about some ideas. So we met and he said he wondered without sort of over directing the team projects in any way and, and destroying any of the creativity, if there was a way that we could collaborate better up front so that the primary issues of the healthcare system that they are grappling with, you know, around their leadership table um, could somehow perhaps be, you know, integrated into these team projects. And I said, well, that's, that would be great. Let's figure out a way to do that. So he was going to have his leadership team send some ideas for projects, but that didn't happen. So what ended up happening in, back in January, after we got the list of potential team projects, Sam Chun and I, the other co-director of the program, take the long list of team projects and we hone it down. We narrow it to probably 10 to 15 potential projects because some of them you know, they're just way outside the scope of, of this sort of a six-month program and way outside the scope of being able to implement anything. Mm. And some of them are just not, they're just not priorities. They're not hot-burning topics, you know. So we take what we think would be a good project and give it back to the class and say, okay, here, now you all know your teams. You all, Each team needs to meet and rank your top three choices for a project that you would work on from this list. And then you, each team will get one of their top three choices, maybe not their first, but one of the top three. So, and that's always worked well. Well, this year I sent that list, <clears throat> the honed list back to the CEO of the health system and said, now, could you tell me your priorities from this list, you know, and and he and his leadership team looked it over and they ranked, you know, like their top five um, initiatives that they saw represented in those team projects and sent it back to me. And fortunately, and without me directing the teams, the teams ended up choosing four out of those five um, projects um, as being one of their top three choices. So, you know, that was a nice melding yeah. of priorities. Yeah. And now the hospital system, the healthcare system is supplying us with resources, especially human expert resources around each of these topics so that the teams have really great resources to rely on for further development of their, their projects. So I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I got it. I understand it better now how those projects um, come about. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really like how you align it with the real true mission of the hospital and um, yeah, what matters and can be implemented. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And some of them I should say, you know, because we have non-clinical um, faculty as well. Some of our basic science faculty are in the program. We also occasionally they will choose, you know, a developing a new um, a center, a new research center or um, a new training grant proposal, you know, those sorts of things also. It's not all just clinical program implementation for the projects, but a lot of it does tend to focus on the, the clinical side. Now, before you jump to your second thing, I have one last question because I'm curious about this. Over the years, have you modified the curriculum or tweaked it in any way to meet changing needs? I assume you do an evaluation of participants after the course. What do you like? What do you didn't like? I, mean, I think you can get that I'm kind of always um, interested in how new generations or the younger faculty, newer faculty, diverse faculty uh, are, are, you know, taking our development, how, how they, how they learn from it or want to change things up, or, you know, we put a curriculum together and then um, we have to continuously improve it or change things or modify things to be digestible to a newer or different audience. So I'm, I'm curious if you've, if something comes to you easily that you can say, oh, yeah, over the years, we they didn't like this. Newer newer crops of faculty don't particularly care for that, and they want this instead. Can, does something come, on, come to mind? Yes. Well, first of all, this past year, um, Sam Chun and I sat down to do a major, a deep dive into the program to see if there were things that we should change. And we, you know, we do get evaluations every year. I have to tell you, they're always outstanding, though. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to change something significantly when 
people seem to be getting so much value out of it and t- saying such glowing things about it. So we've, we haven't changed the bare bones of the program. We have asked some of the instructors to change up their lessons a little bit because they tend to do a, a case-based format, you know, um, sort of like the Harvard Business School approach of basing things around a case. And, you know, sometimes we ask them to update what they're using, and they do. Um, some of the instructors, though, <laughs> I'm thinking particularly of our Operational Excellence um, program, which was la- just last week. Um, that's a very, very effective um, program, and he has not changed that one drop, one iota in eight years. And to me, because I've been part of it, watched it, observed it so many times, I think it seems really stale. But as Sam points out, it's not for me. It's for the new student coming in. And for each new student, they still seem to get a great deal out of it and really like it, you know. So it's hard to to be objective when you're the one seeing it year after year and seeing the same thing. So we have to really rely on the evaluations, A. B, um, we have periodically added an, an additional optional session on communications and presentation style. Um, and in the past, I had this outside group that came in and we had some, I had some extra grant money from the Sloan Foundation work that we did, that we, you know, did a few years ago around career flexibility to build on um, communication skills for our faculty. So I was able to fund this group, and we also had a donor who was very interested in um, faculty presentations because he didn't like what he was hearing. He was a board, a Washington University board member who was a very influential person locally as head of a major industry, major corporation. And, you know, he sat on the board and he would listen to faculty come and give presentations to the board of trustees. And he was not impressed. And so he wanted to he wanted to improve faculty's presentation style. So he gave us a grant, you know, and said, here, wow, here, I want you to do this. And here's the group I recommend that you use for this, because I brought them into my industry and they did great things. And they came from Chicago and they did they did this for us several years in a row as an optional add-on session. And it was great. But unfortunately, they disbanded their group a few years ago. The, the principals moved to England. And so I don't have them available. So Sam and I have been working on adding in. And this year, for the first time, we have a new, we've added an extra session. So it's now nine sessions long instead of the past is eight. And it, there's a formal communications um session, eight-hour session. So I'm going to be interested to sit in on that and see how that goes this year, because I do think that's a critical um, piece of the program that we that we had sort of overlooked in the past, except for these add-on sessions, because as I listen to the team project presentations, for instance, at the end, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, can you really not speak into a microphone? Can you really not participate with your audience? You know, you just think that faculty at this level know these things, but they don't. And, you know, I just think that these are critical skills that we have to continue to um, instill in our faculty. And so that's a new piece that we are adding this year. I also will say that that I do observe you know, we've moved through, this is our eighth cohort, as I said, so we don't quite have a generation difference yet, you know, but I would say that there there is one constant that we see in the requests at the end of sessions, and that is that they want all of the cases to not come from business or not come from industry or not come from somewhere else. They want them all to be from Washington University Medical Center and School of Medicine so that they can directly transfer what they're hearing and seeing into real life. But my business school colleagues, partners in this say, no, 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 we never use um, expert expert topics, topics that we have experts in the room around. We try to avoid that completely because otherwise it totally derails the lesson because people start to nitpick and start to, you know, critique, well, that's not really the way it works. And this is what I know about this, you know. And so this is something that we continually have to 
you know, advise our group that the reason we don't do that is because it's, the learning is not as good, even though they, some of them still don't believe that, you know. So that's one thing I will say that um, we've, we've had to emphasize over and over again. The reason that we don't use medical school, medical center examples for the cases is because you all know too much about that already and you won't get the lessons that we're trying to instill out of the out of the program if we do that. I that is so interesting to me. I never ever would have thought about that I, of having case cases that are outside of your realm of expertise, but that makes so much sense. When you do case yeah, scenarios and they do get it, well, wait a minute, then because then there's the little bit of the eye rolling of, then they have a list exactly. of 15 follow-up questions. Well, are they this? Are they doing that? Are they doing this? That is brilliant. I think that it, I've never heard that as the the case for using business cases. That makes perfect sense, though. Yes, exactly. Or when we are talking about a clinical topic, for example, we look at Cleveland Clinic. We don't look at Washington University, you know, wow. healthcare system and so forth. So anyway, to take people out of their realm of comfort and, and expertise. Awesome. What was the second thing? You, you said earlier you want to talk about another thing. Oh, oh, well, I'll just touch on the other. And this may, this may sound like a rerun and probably is in contradistinction to what I told you very early in our conversation about yet another task force around women faculty, but I am again sharing a task force for the advancement of women and, and with the dean's, you know, overt support and resources um, to truly make a difference in advancing women into higher ranks more quickly and leadership roles. And so we have a proposal with all kinds of initiatives in it, um, and we're just getting underway with some of that. Yeah, well, how, how, how are you doing? What, what are your stats on women and do you, do you collect data, satis, you know, faculty satisfaction survey data by gender? Do you have a sense that you are moving the needle? Yes, we do. Well, Washington University does a faculty uh, work life survey every five years. And so many of these questions are embedded in that um, larger survey. Our last one, last survey was in 2015. And at that time, the, the standout issues were that there were 11 items for which women express, express significantly more negative responses, statistically significantly more negative responses than male faculty respondents. Um, things such as having to work harder to be seen as a scholar. Um, gathering respect of leadership and colleagues, you know, feeling, feeling included as a worthy member of their team or their department, you know, all of these sorts of issues. And then we found that women on the clinician track, less than 50% of them felt that they had had any adequate mentoring thus far in their career, mm. whereas Women on the investigator track, which is our tenure track, um, expressed satisfaction at the same level as their male colleagues around mentoring. And all the men expressed on all tracks expressed much higher <clears throat> feelings of satisfaction around mentoring than did the women. So we know this is a big issue. Um, overall, men and women were equally satisfied with their roles as faculty members at Washington University, but for these 11 particular items, women um, expressed more dissatisfaction than men. So those are areas of focus for us. Um, you know, and some of these issues are around work-life balance and ability to integrate their, you know, work life and their home life and so forth. That's always much more um, of a problem we find for women than men, although we are seeing in our our younger, our newer Male faculty that um, that's that's cropping up more commonly as an issue also. Mm. Um, so, are we having success? Well, we have equal numbers of full professor women, as does the AAMC. About twenty five percent of our women faculty are full professors. Wow. Is that adequate? I, I don't think so. Um, 
you know, we have basically the same overall proportion of women faculty as does the AAMC too, almost 40%, 39% of our faculty are women. Um, and as far as leadership roles, I think this is where we really fall down is around leadership. Um, we have our executive faculty is made up of 20 department heads and two of them are permanent full-time appointed as, and are women. And we have one interim um, being filled by a woman right now. Mm-hmm. Um, before our gender equity committee and I advocated for um, a, well, actually, this is another story, but we brought in the group from the University of Wisconsin, the Wisely group, back in 2007. Um, that's Wisely stands for the Women in Science and Engineering Leadership Institute at the University of Wisconsin, where they had had an NSF advance grant, Institutional Transformation Grant, if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. That's a National Science Foundation um, grant, large institutional grant to advance women in STEM careers field. And out of that, they had established this leadership institute. And I had started to encounter Molly Carnes, who was one of the principals in that, at AAMC events and group on faculty affairs events and so forth, where she was presenting on some of the uh, programs that had developed out of their leadership institute. And one of them was focused on recruitment and hiring of diverse faculty. And so they had a a program they had put together um, at Wisconsin to focus on the effects of unconscious bias, basically, and its effect on the search and hiring process. So I, I went up to Molly Carnes at a, I think it was a group on faculty affairs conference somewhere, and said, you know, we could really use this at our University at Washington University in St. Louis, would you guys be willing to take your show on the road and come and present workshops for us? Well, they had never done that before. Molly now tells me, Diana, you were the first. You were the one. (laughs) You were the one who made us start thinking about this. And we came to Washington University first. Anyway, so then that same year they came, I suppose it was a year before when I was talking to her about this, because they came in 2007 in the wintertime and I had recruited 63 senior faculty and department heads, and even the chancellor and the dean were there for part of the day and the provost um, to sit in on these workshops around the effects of unconscious bias and about best practices in the search and hiring process. It was very effective. All of a sudden, I had a whole crowd of converted people, you know, converted faculty and leaders who understood so much more about things that they had never thought about previously. And so out of that, I developed a little process improvement team around search and hiring. And since that time, I'm the only member of that team who's remained constant. It turns over because like one of the women on the team in the early years became the chair of medicine here, Vicki Frazier, for instance, and others have gone on to other uh, big roles. And so they can no longer be on the team. Anyway, we present at the outset of every leadership search committee here for the last eight years we've been doing this, or eight or nine years now. And, you know, the effects of unconscious bias, basically, on the search and hiring process. We use the AAMC's e-learning seminar on this topic. Uh, You know, we go back and forth between that um, seminar and our own slide file and presentation. And I just see light bulbs go on around the table almost every time we present this to a leadership search committee. We'd like to be able to present it to all faculty search committees here at the school, but that's like an overwhelming task. We need so many more people trained to be able to do this than I currently have access to. So we're working on that. But only since we have been presenting this to our leadership search committees have we appointed any women at this long-storied 125-year School of Medicine. Only since 2010 have we appointed any women as department heads um, at this school. And so I do feel like we're having an impact. (laughs) It's slow, and I can't say the same yet for our underrepresented minority department heads because we don't currently have any, but but they are trying. I know, you know, we're tracking all the search committee processes and interviews and finalists and so forth. And there are many more underrepresented, both 
gender-wise and uh, racial ethnic-wise on those finalist lists, lists than there were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like we're making progress, um, but it's a lot of effort and it has to be constant, ongoing. Yeah, you're right. That really um, awesome video on YouTube that's, I think it's called, What Kind of Asian Are You? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Oh, my gosh. You'll, everybody, you have to go to YouTube, type in, okay. What Kind of Asian Are You? It's so <laughs> adorable. It it starts off and people are like, this is ridiculous. But it gets, it's so, it's a kind of a sweet, funny way of, heightening your awareness of the comments we make out of sometimes, you know, good intentions, but not recognizing or realizing the impact we have on people. So everybody should check yeah. that out. That's, it's really cute. What kind okay. of Asian are you? Wow. That's, so I assume in, in keeping with the uh, standard that your dean has set forth that on this task force for advancement of women, you do have some executive faculty members. We do. Uh-huh. Yes. Many, <laughs> several male and female. That's awesome. <laughs> It's a huge task force, Kim, more than I usually like to have on a committee because you know how unwieldy it becomes just A, to schedule meetings and B, to get all the input from everybody around the table and so forth. It can become really difficult, but we want a wide representation of faculty from various tracks and and from various ranks and so forth. So It's a heavy lift and it's a lot of work, but you're right. You have to doggedly pursue it um, and just be, you know, dog with a bone, can't let it go. You got to just keep pushing. And it's a, it's a lot of work. But as you said earlier, when you were made that comment, I kind of laughed to myself when you were talking about your leadership programs, your program, when I asked you, do you change a curriculum? And then you said, you made a comment about how it's not about me, the, you know, the fact that you've been seeing the same content, content for eight years now, and you're maybe bored or stale with it doesn't mean it's not fresh for everybody else. So it kind of made me think of that and laughing at myself as like, yeah, Kim, you know, get out of your own head. It's not about you. It's about the faculty. And similarly, all this hard work is not about us and how much the hard, how hard it is or complicated to get people's schedules. It's about something bigger than us. And um, we just have to have faith that what we are doing will make change and it's making progress. So kudos to you. Yes, I agree. And pertinent to that, I will tell you, though, that I, I was very honored this past Saturday night to be recognized for all of this work over the last um, 16 and a half years. I was presented the Washington University Medical Center Alumni Association's Distinguished Service Award wow. at a big award dinner on Saturday night at the Ritz. All of my family was here, my children and all of my siblings and their spouses and some nieces. Yeah, so it was really it was really very wonderful and warm and heartwarming to be yeah. to be honored publicly for something that is intrinsically so rewarding to me. It is a lot of work, but it's also very rewarding work, so, you know. It's just such a gift that the jobs we have, it's just the best job ever. It just makes me feel so good. People ask, Kim, do you have a vacation planned? And I, and I honestly say, my life is a vacation. I love my job. I am living the dream. I didn't mean to toot my own horn, but I just have to say it's just really, it is wonderful to, you know, I, I didn't expect it. It came out of the blue, actually at a very low point in my year when, after my injury and surgery in December, like two weeks later, this letter from the, the chancellor arrived, you know, <clears throat> you know, saying that I was to be given this award. Would I be able to be present on April 6th for this award ceremony dinner? And anyway, so it was, yeah, it was just really I'm very humbled and honored to uh, be recognized in such a way. So, Well, you're right. I mean, anyway. it's just like I was talking with Daryl Kirch, the president of the AAMC yesterday, and, and he said something, you know, similar that when he got involved in leadership at the AAMC, there was no organized structure for faculty affairs. And, and he said it was almost as if um, people felt that they, that faculty would be developed and have career development guidance by osmosis, that it would just happen kind of by magic. And there was no Mm -hmm. recognized infrastructure, formalized approach to doing this. So what you're talking about is exactly the culmination of what he and the the originator, the people who actually were the very beginning of faculty affairs, faculty development, folks like you've been doing this for more than a decade, who get this, the contribution, the value of the work we do, that um, how we change and help people find their passions, find their gifts, 
uh, achieve their excellence, achieve their dreams that ultimately, you know, helps our, our populations with health and diagn- diagnosis and prevention and cure and treatment and discovery, all that stuff is, uh, we actually, we do important work. And just what he said and what you said in this recognition is finally acknowledging that fact that our contributions are real. So good for you. Yes. Yes. Well, you're a great champion of this, Kim. So we appreciate your efforts here. Thank you. Well, Diane, I want to thank you so much for your time. We've learned so much from you. Um, uh, this is great sharing your wisdom and inspiration. And folks, you've been listening to Dr. Diana Gray, the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at WashU in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.